Thank you, uh, worship team. Good morning again, and welcome to Bethany Bible Chapel. Um, if you're visiting today, we're really glad to have you here. This is the portion in our service where we open up our Bibles and really seek the Lord's face as we study God's Word together. This is precious time uh, as we open up the Scriptures. Just as b- by way of introduction, um, I don't know if I've ever uh, done this before, but... Um, I'm gonna, I want to just put in a short plug for youth group. Uh, maybe there's some of you here, or maybe you have grandkids here, or um, maybe you have grandkids elsewhere, or friends elsewhere that um, would be interested in coming to our youth group. Levi and Elizabeth and Marlis and I lead youth group here on Wednesday nights. We've got about, I don't know, anywhere from 12 to 25 kids that come on a Wednesday night. We start at 7 o'clock and go till... Uh, nine, and just spend time in God's Word, studying God's Word together and, and praying together. We started something this year that's been really uh, fun, um, I think beneficial. Um, it's probably the least favorite thing uh, for our youth group. You, you can ask them later. But we ask the kids, we force the kids to go and pray together. And we don't like check up on them to make sure they're actually doing it, but we split up into groups of two and three and just spend time praying Scripture uh, over each other. And so that's a really special time. Uh, and then we come back together and study God's word. So just want to extend that invitation. Um, Maybe you're visiting here or know of kids that would be interested. It's high school uh, youth group, uh, Wednesday nights, uh, 7 to 9, and just would would just, anybody's welcome. We had probably 40% of the kids that come don't go to church here on Sunday morning, uh, but are there, and it's just a great time to be together. So just want to extend that invitation to you. Um, We're continuing our series this morning through the books of Thessalonians. We're in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, picking up halfway through the chapter, and then we'll be looking at the first part of chapter 3. So if you would open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13. Um, we'll be starting there. But before we go there, I just want to read um, a verse for you uh, from the first, first Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. Uh, Paul says, for this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the words of men, but as it is in truth. That's the actual reality. These are not the words of men. As it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. And that is just my, my heart this morning, is that God's word would work in you effectively as we go through this passage uh, in Second Thessalonians this morning, that God's word would, would work in you and encourage you and strengthen you uh, for the work at hand. And so let's turn to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, read with me, uh, starting here in verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in truth to which he called you by our gospel, for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. For not all have faith, 
But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Let's just uh, pause and, and pray and ask God's blessing on his word this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words of encouragement, this challenge to stand strong, to pray for each other, and to set our hearts on your love for us. God, we have been reminded over and over already this morning of your great gift of salvation. And as we once again consider just the goodness of our great God and Savior this morning, I just pray that you would effectively work in us through the power of your word to change us and to strengthen us in the work that you have for us to do. Lord, these are your people, and so I just pray that you would use uh, the words that I share to encourage and strengthen your people. For your glory we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 13 begins, he says, we are bound to give thanks to God always for you. You know, I, um, I'm thankful for uh, the love that God has put in my heart for each of you. We often meet in elder meetings and just spend time praying for you. And it's not out of duty or obligation, but it really is genuine love um, that God has put in our hearts for you and um, I think that's something that happens over time. It happens as we just do life together. I mean, we're no different than the rest of you, right? And so we're just as we're serving Christ together, Christ binds our hearts together in unity, unity in purpose, unity in our Savior. And Paul here, he just says, I'm bound to give thanks for, he's thankful for their common faith. He's thankful for their obedience in Christ. And, and so he just, he just stops in the middle, in the contrast of these false teachers and, and everything that's going on, he says, I'm thankful for you. And I, I just echo that. I'm thankful for your input in my life, for your advice, for the, the modeling that you model of Christ's uh, love um, and the, the examples that I have to look up to here. Um, so thankful uh, for that. And I think that's a work of God as he draws our hearts together as a church family. And uh, Paul's expressing this, his thankfulness for their mutual uh, affection and, and love. And he, and he gives thanks really not only to them, but to God, because God's the one that makes this possible. It's Christ Jesus and his work on the cross that unifies us as a family. And, and so he goes from there, and he says, we are bound to give thanks always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. And I just wrote down, you know, just this is, this, if you were to kind of outline this, it's just like he's saying, who are you? And, and he answers the question, you are, and I don't know how you look at yourself, but you're somebody that is beloved by God. That's a reality. He says, you're beloved by God. That's who you are. You know, I was talking with somebody earlier this morning during the coffee break, and we were talking about work, and Work is not our identity, the, our, our, our achievements on the, on the field of sports is not where our identity comes from, or maybe it's, it's our fame or whatever it might be. That's, that's not who we are. We're, as born-again believers, our identity is we're beloved by God. And that's how Paul views him, and it's the reality, it's a spiritual reality about who they are. Who are you? You're beloved by God. Don't allow the wicked one, to deceive you and, 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 and get you down and think, well, I'm, yeah, I, I may be saved, but I'm, I'm a screw up, I'm a mess up, and 
Um, I'm identified by my failure. No. As a born-again Christian, you are beloved by God. Why are you loved? Why does God love you? Boy, is that not um, the question for the ages. Why? I don't know. But it says here you're chosen from the very beginning. From the beginning chose you for salvation. Think about that. God chose you. You know what that means? That means that there is no performance-based salvation. My salvation is not based on my performance and how I come to God or what I do prior to being saved or whatever. No, there's no performance-based salvation. If God, the reality is, the ramification of that statement that God chose you from the beginning means that you had no part in that, in making yourself somehow measure up to God's standards so then he would love you. Christ came to save sinners. Christ the healer, you know, he demonstrated that attribute of God when he healed people. And he said, I didn't come to, to heal the healthy. I came to heal the sick. And so there is, there's great freedom in knowing that, that I don't have to get myself right to come to God. I come to God as a sick, hurting, broken individual. And that God loves me that way and desires to make me whole. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. Salvation, he goes on, he says, salvation through sanctification. Who are you? You're beloved by God. Why are you loved? Because God chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. Um, sanctification here, uh, there are multiple um, meanings of sanctification in the New Testament. There's progressive sanctification where... Um, as I, uh, when I commit my life to Christ and, and I become born again and he is my Lord and Savior, there is, there is sanctifying work that the Holy Spirit does through me, the washing of the water, the word of God. There's challenges that God brings into my life, trials that sanctify me. And, that, and the Bible says in Philippians that he who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. That we're, none of us here are the complete picture. Okay, none of us are. And God continues to sanctify us daily until he brings us in his time into his presence or comes back and takes us as a church home to be with him. But, but here also, it seems to be that Paul's talking about the sanctification that takes place upon our salvation, which is that God no longer looks at us and sees us, sees a sinner, but he looks at us and sees someone who's covered by the blood of Christ. And this process of sanctification and salvation is to be set apart. And God is drawing this person. He sets them apart from the world and he begins to draw them to his heart through the gospel, through you as a neighbor or maybe you as a co-worker sharing with them. And this, this setting apart and drawing them to himself by the spirit and belief in the truth. Um, uh, through sanctification, Paul says, by the spirit and belief in the truth. So God's spirit is beginning to draw this person, and also there is a belief in the truth, the word of God. You know, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And so as, as this unbeliever is being drawn to the Lord by the Spirit, God's word begins to convict their heart. They hear God's word, and as they believe in God's word, that's the sanctification that takes place. This is um, not always a painless process. 
um, sanctification, whether it be in salvation or progressive sanctification for us as believers, um, can be a very painful thing. Um, we were working earlier this month or last month at a chemical plant, and we had to go through like this half-hour um, safety course to work there, and I was fairly frustrated about it because the work we were doing was so far away from the chemical plant, actually, that we didn't really need to go through this, but we did because we had to. And so we're all sitting there listening to this guy go on and on, and he gets to the point of his presentation, and he says, now there's like approximately 52 showers, outdoor showers throughout our facility. And should you, in the rare case, come into contact with the, I don't know, like they manufacture some like 15 or 30 different chemicals that some of which are extremely dangerous at this place. Should you come into contact, you need to race to one of these 50-some showers and uh, pull the cord and have a coworker stand and count for like 15 minutes while you take this cold shower. And he said, and we'll try to get you in the next, within the next 15 minutes inside to one of our indoor showers. Now this is again, like a couple weeks ago, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I don't know how dangerous those chemicals are, but there's no way I'm pulling the chain right now outside and standing in this cold water shower. Could they not have like required them to do like hot showers outside or something? But no, he said, it's freezing cold, but he said, just stand under it and we'll wash you off. And the, the, nobody does that unless it's a life-threatening emergency. And so the reality of the dangerous chemicals, I'm guessing if I had gotten them on myself, you know, in the, in, when you're sitting there, you're thinking, there's no way I'm doing that. But if you actually got that stuff on yourself and you realize, you know, if I don't wash this stuff off, I'm dying. Um, the cold shower becomes nothing. And the sanctification that God does in our lives upon salvation is... is it's a cold shower. There, there, is a, there is a change in direction in your life. There's a change in your friends. Um, and it's not necessarily an attractive thing, but when you realize the consequences of if you, don't, if you don't allow God to cover your sins, if you don't allow him to take those away, what's at stake? You have a sin problem. And I, I just, I want to just, Stop before we go on, because we're going to go on, and the rest of this, this message is about believers. And this is an encouraging message for us as believers. But I just want to stop here and just say, maybe you're in that position where you're here this morning, and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Um, but you have felt, maybe that's why you're here. You have felt uh, the drawing of the Spirit of God through the Word of God. And as you've heard about sin and about salvation, you realize that you've got a sin problem that's on you like a bad chemical. And um, if you don't get that taken care of, there's eternal consequences to pay. And I, would just, I just would plead with you to um, accept the invitation that's open to all, to anyone, that whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. Saved from what? Saved from eternity in hell. Saved to what? An eternity in the presence of God. And that invitation uh, is open. Would you, I would just ask that you would submit to the Spirit's call on your life and that you would believe. It's as simple as believing in the truths of God's word. Um, not in a, believing in something somebody's told you, but read the Bible for yourself. Take God's word for what it is, the absolute truth and believe in it 
as unto salvation. So just, just an encouragement to you. If you're, um, if you're thinking about that, I'd be happy to talk with you afterwards, happy to pray with you, uh, open up God's word together. Um, there's just nothing uh, more important, no matter how much you think is urgent, um, there's nothing more urgent than getting right um, with God. But let's continue. Look, at, look down with me at verse 14. To which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Paul here in his introduction to uh, the rest of this chapter is um, really kind of giving the gospel in a capsule. And he says, here's, here's the past, history. God chose you from the very beginning. And then he looks all the way forward to the future. And he looks forward to us um, collectively as the church obtaining the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I was really blessed by uh, George's message last week because as I was looking at this passage and over the last couple of weeks, I was really struggling with this idea of, of us obtaining any glory at all. Um, God, what glory do I deserve to, to have? Like, I'm a, I'm a nobody. Like, Jesus Christ, get, may you get all the glory. And may I get nothing. Like, I didn't... It, that concept to me, this, I mean, I read it, and I read it, and I'm like, Lord, how do we, why do we want to even, that doesn't even seem to be something that I should want to obtain, is glory. I want to give God the glory. And I was just really blessed last week. For those of you who are here, uh, hopefully you remember, if you don't, I'll just repeat it, that George is just encouraging us that because of who we are in Christ, because of our inheritance in him, and we think of Christ ministry and he was not glorified Isaiah 53 this morning he was he was not a man to be esteemed but when he comes again in his glory the very fact that we are his sons and daughters in Christ Jesus will be a glorified thing that will bring uh, God glory but it will share in that glory because of who our father is because of who our heavenly father is and so so this glory is not not really in who I am, but whose I am. You know, that, uh, the whole idea of who I belong to is why um, I obtain any glory at all. And so this is the um, context in which Paul then says, therefore. And this is the context in which you and I should live our lives and that we recognize who we are in Christ what he has done for us, and then look forward to the future, to obtaining of this glory. And this is the context. Our testimonies, our uh, stories of how God saved us should not be just that in the, in, in the history, but it, it should affect every aspect of our life. And so he stops here in verse 15, and he says, Therefore, brethren, and, and, and the, the reality of Christ's work in your life, Christian, should be a therefore brethren. The reality of Christ as your Lord and Savior should be, therefore I do this. Therefore I do that. Therefore, because of what Christ did for me, therefore I live and breathe and play basketball and play golf and work and go to Bible study and whatever. It all runs under the context of what Christ has done for me. And who I am in Christ. So verse 15, therefore brethren, stand fast. Stand fast. One of my uh, favorite things to do is go to the ocean. Um, remember the first time I went to the ocean, I was eight years old. We went down to the Rio Grande and 
uh, there's lots of breakers down there in the uh, um, uh, South Padre Island and uh, stood in the ocean with my grandpa and remember just the waves just coming in and crashing on me. But one of, the, one of my favorite things to do when I'm at the ocean is to stand in the water about, you know, get out about chest deep and just stand in the water with my back to the shore and just look out at the, at the horizon. And the waves come in and out and in and out and you just kind of float and stand and bob up and down and stand there and look at the horizon. And I'll do that sometimes for, you know, like usually when you're at the ocean, you're not really on that tight of a schedule, so I don't know how long, but a long time. And just stand there and, and, and look. And sometimes half an hour, 40 minutes will go by and I turn around and I look and I don't recognize anything on the shore. And it didn't feel like I was moving at all, uh, but I was. And I'm a long ways off from where I had started. And this idea of standing fast, I think, when it comes to our, our walk with Christ, when it comes to our own personal walk with the Lord, is what are my feet resting on? And occasionally there'll be a big rock in the water, and if you stand on that rock, you'll feel how much the current is really moving you, and it's really hard to stay on a rock unless it's a massive rock that has a good spot for your feet, but usually they're slippery. It's usually really hard to stand on. When you're on the sand, the sand all feels the same, and the current feels the same, and it's really hard to stay in one spot. But when you put your feet on the rock, or when you turn around and you have a point of reference on the shore, uh, you see how much you're really moving. And Paul here is, is saying to the, these, these Christians, he's saying, stand fast on the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or epistle. Now let's talk about um, this just a little bit. The apostolic uh, tradition um, versus man's tradition. You know, this verse could be used to uh, constrain you with uh, traditions maybe of of times gone by, or uh, different eras, or different maybe denominations. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Uh, this, this apostolic tradition, this tradition that they had passed on to the early church, uh, was, was really Christ's method of building his church. And so Christ had, had come and given this information, this teaching to his apostles, and they in turn handed it down to the church. Some of it was through spoken word. They would go around and speak to the churches. And a lot of it was through these epistles that we have with us today. And they wrote these things down, and the expectation was for the church to live uh, by the traditions that they handed down. So what are the implications of this? Um, there are, I think, a few. One of them is, is that all of the New Testament is equally inspired and of supreme importance to the beliefs and practices of the Christian. The teachings of Christ and the teachings of his apostles are equal in their importance to my life. And so when we read the New Testament, we don't just read the Gospels and then say, well, well Christ is speaking here, you know, the words are in red, so surely those must be of most importance. And it's not that they aren't important, they are. But when we read the New Testament, we understand that these, these are not the words of, 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 of men. Yes, they are, but these are men, we're going to go there in a second where Peter talks about this, but these are men moved by the Spirit of God 
to write things down for us as a church to follow. So the whole New Testament is equally inspired. That would be the first implication of, of apostolic tradition, that we would, we would hold to the traditions that the apostles demonstrated for us. The whole New Testament is equally inspired and is important for us as a church to follow. Um, secondly, there's no room for rethinking the gospel and the mission of the church. The timeless truths and directions for Christian living laid out by the apostles is still relevant and foundational to everything we do and teach. It does not need to be improved on or watered down or softened. We simply must come to the word of God as our supreme authority for life and ministry. The New Testament does not need revision. Um, There are radical things there for sure. And we live in a world that would love to tone that down. And uh, we must stand strong and be bold as Christians in our generation to uphold the word of God with no apology and um, it is relevant for our ministry. And so um, there doesn't need to be any improvement upon this that Paul is, is saying, hey, hold fast to this. This is faithful. And then the third implication, uh, the supremacy of scripture in the life of the believer means that the traditions of culture and or denomination are subordinate to the clear teachings of scripture. You know, for example, it's not saying because we are to follow the traditions of the apostles, we are bound to follow the traditions of the early church fathers or more modern church leaders. Paul even confronts this ideology in Colossians when he says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. See, this isn't just a plea for nostalgia but it's rather a continuity that through all of history we would be unified in our uh, purpose and in our ministry based off of what God handed down through his apostles to us, the church. Look with me, um, I'll read it for, for you here in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Turn over to, I want you to turn here because this is, uh, this is a great passage that we don't, we don't come to God's word in, in skepticism, but, but it, it is, what it claims to be is absolute truth from God himself. These are not the words of men. 2 Peter 1, 16. 2 Peter 1, 16. Peter says, For we did not follow cunningly desired fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the, honor, the Father the honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we have heard this voice, which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed as a light that shines in the dark place until that day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so this this idea of the apostles' teaching, the apostles' doctrine, this is not just some man's ideas. This is, this, is a separate, this is a separate level. This is information from Christ himself 
for his church. This is not advice from a godly man. Um, This is a whole other level. This is the teachings of Christ through his men. Acts 2.42 says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. You know, we would consider ourselves here um, a New Testament assembly, and you say, well, what, what does that mean? Sometimes when we meet with people about joining the fellowship here, and, and, and this comes up, and they're like, well, what, what does that mean, New Testament assembly? And what it means is we read the New Testament, and we say, God, what, what happened? How did you start your church? How did you expect a church to function? What did the church do? What was the church's mission? And we read it, we see what the apostles did, we see what the early church did, and we want to model our church after that. And there's a lot of freedom there. There's, not, um, there's a, lot of, a lot of liberty we have in Christ to, to do it a lot of different ways. It's not that there's a rigidity to it, um, but there is an understanding that we should read the New Testament. If we're going to be Christ's church, then shouldn't we read his word to find out how we as a church are to meet? how we are a church, are to love each other, to minister to one another. And so um, the Apostles' Doctrine, the New Testament, is foundational to the, the life and ministry of the Christian. So Paul here is saying, stand fast, hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or epistle. May the rock in the middle of that ocean that's going back and forth and the currents, may that that rock be the word of God. Hold fast to that. Stand fast on it. I was at um, a visitation Friday night, and um, my great aunt had passed away, and another one of my great aunts was there, and she came up to me. My great aunt was one of uh, 10 children, and there are now 300 family members from that family. And she said to me, you know, it's, it's just so sad that my great-grandparents were born again, both of them rock-solid Christians. It's so sad that of that 300, there are many who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the things that she said to me was, she said, I think that when the monarchs pass away, and my great-grandparents have been gone a long time, she said, when the monarchs pass away, the faith really struggles. And I, I didn't say anything to her, I just listened. But... If that's the case, then the faith really wasn't the kid's own. If the faith is in what grandpa and grandma believe, then it's not your own. You're not standing fast on the truth of God. You're just, you're just associating with someone who does. And Paul here is not pleading with them to hold to some tradition just to make grandpa and grandma feel better. He's pleading with them to stand fast on your own. And I would just say to the younger generation here, to those of you in the youth group, to those of you in in college, um, younger people, um, you're not here to impress those that are older or to please them or anything. Your mission is to make this faith your own and stand fast on the truth of God's word for yourself. This This is life or death, and absolutely, you could be uh, in that generation, just like in my extended family, where 300 of them, many don't even know, couldn't even share the gospel with you, don't even know. And you say, how could that happen in such a short time? It happens because their faith wasn't their own. They didn't stand fast on the truth of God's word for their own life. They were just associating 
with others that did. So watch, stand fast. Um, and then Paul prays for them. He says, now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us an everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you for every good word and work. I think it's, it's instructive that of the two things that Paul asks for God to do in these believers as they stand fast is comfort and uh, give hope. Um, and I think that two things that can cause us to stop standing fast are fear and discouragement. And over and over throughout scripture, we just see the encouragement. Be strong, be courageous, and, and the, the tendency, the, the, the darts from the wicked one are to cause us to be discouraged and cause us to be afraid. And so Paul blesses them and prays for them and the two things he uses to combat the temptation to, to give in to the influences of the world, to give in to the influences of bad teaching, destructive doctrines, is to, to be encouraged by God, be comforted in our hearts um, by the Lord. We, we've, we must move on, but I, I can't move on without reading uh, this passage from Acts um, because I think this is just exemplary in our own life. Paul here is, is um, recounting to them that he's, he's getting ready to leave to go back to Jerusalem. This is Acts 20. He's getting ready to go back to Jerusalem and he's talking with the Ephesian elders and he says, every city I've gone to, the Holy Spirit tells me when I go back, I'm going to suffer great tribulation and yet I go on, I go on. And, and he kind of finishes this statement and I think he's telling them this because he wants them to have the same heart, the same resoluteness about themselves. And in Acts 20, 24, he says, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. May the things of this world not move us or even the impending tribulation or struggles or trial that we think, yeah, but if I say yes to this God, uh, what could that mean? May we with Paul just say, none of these things move me. Like, that's not moving me. My, my, my focus, my eyes are fixed on this reference point on the shore or my feet are planted on this rock that I want to finish well the race that God has set before me and testify to the gospel, the grace of God. Okay, we need to move on. Um, mutual prayer. Uh, chapter 3 uh, starts out with this encouragement for us to pray for each other. Um, and what are we to pray about? Pray that the word of God runs swiftly and that it's glorified. We uh, need to pray for each other. Um, I, think it's, I think it's pretty amazing here in that Paul is, is confronting some, some bad teaching here and all this stuff, and yet he, he lays himself before the Thessalonian church, and here he is, this apostle, he's hearing from God, and what's he asked them to do? He says, pray for us. Um, none of us here are on a level where we don't need prayer. Um, pray for the elders. Pray for the deacons. Pray for um, our Sunday school teachers. Uh, pray for our Awana leaders. Pray for what? Pray that the word of God runs swiftly. Pray that God's word is effectively taught and preached in this place. Pray that God's word is glorified. You know, we, um, we meet together on Sunday nights and pray in the coffee nook back there. And right now, because of the um, remodeling, uh, all the Awana kids walk by us. 
every evening. And I love it because it's just a reminder as we're sitting there, and we usually aren't praying yet, we're going through prayer requests. You just see like 65 little prayer requests walking by. And it's such a reminder of the work that is going on. There's a struggle for these souls. Many of these kids walking by don't know the Lord is their Savior. And that's why we do what we do. That's why we open these doors up and have them in and help them to memorize Scripture. But if we neglect to pray for them, that's vital to that ministry. And so the call is on each of us. And no one is is exempt from their need for prayer, whether it be an Awana leader or maybe even a little puggle uh, walking by you. No one's exempt from that need. One of the things, also another example, uh, quickly, when we were uh, doing our door-to-door evangelism this summer, there was a change this summer in our meeting place, and we had a prayer meeting in the park prior to us going out. And it was such a... um, it was such a powerful thing. Um, I always went out to do evangelism and never stayed back to pray. But, um, and I know we don't need to physically be in the same place. I mean, we can, the beauty of prayer is we can be in our prayer closet in down the hallway next to the vacuum cleaner. We don't need to be physically somewhere, but we're physical people. And as we were leaving to go do spiritual battle and knock on doors and just be rejected over and over again, it was such a blessing to see those of you around those picnic tables, as we left, lifting us up in prayer. It was so powerful to know there are people back there praying for us right now that what? That the word of God would run swiftly and that God's word would be glorified. And we ask, how can God's word be glorified? What's a practical, how do we pray for God's word to be glorified? God's word is glorified when people obey it. God's word is glorified when people believe in his word to be true. We're going through Daniel right now in youth group. Tony's been just firing it away in in youth group with the book of Daniel. And um, two times in Daniel, godless kings give glory to God because of the obedience by men of God to the word of God. And so you got these like totally godless, like self-absorbed kings with some of the most beautiful scripture passages in all of scripture uh, written down and recorded for us. And it happened because men of God believed the word of God and obeyed the word of God. And so for God's word to be glorified, it needs to be obeyed by his people. It needs to be believed by his people. And so pray that for each other. Pray that God's word would be glorified. Pray that God's word would run swiftly uh, through this place, through the ministries that are represented here. Pray for each other. Pray for the leaders here. Pray for the teachers here. I just want to read these before we move on. Um, uh, this is Nebuchadnezzar uh, glorifying God after uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's um, obedience to not bow down to his idol. And he says, for he is the lid, living God. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. That's coming from a godless godless king who saw the obedience of these men. He says, there's no other God who can deliver like this. And then Darius also, after Daniel was thrown in the lion's den, says this uh, in his response to Daniel's obedience to God. He says, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? Glory to God. 
When we see people come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior, and you see the transformation of their life, there's nothing that brings God glory like that. When you see them obey the truths of God's word and turn around and, and, and live for Christ, praise God that brings great glory to his name. And God is glorified through the obedience um, of his word. So let's pray that for each other. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of God may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. And there will always be opposition. He says um, in verse, uh, verse 3, um, I'm sorry, in verse 2, he says, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. We're not here to seek the approval of the world. We're not here to fight with the world either. Um, that'll happen on its own, but we're certainly not here to seek their approval. And there are wicked, unreasonable men that will always be on the attack, always trying to twist our words and tear us down. And just pray against that. Pray that um, we'll be delivered from those unreasonable and wicked men. Because the reality is not all have faith. And then, but he contrasts that in verse 3 and he says, but the Lord is faithful. 1 Peter 4.19, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. God is faithful, so commit your ways to him. God's faithful to forgive us, 1 John 1, 9. God's faithful in temptation, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. By his very nature, Deuteronomy 7, 9, he is the faithful God, and therefore know that the Lord your God, he is the God, faithful God, who keeps his covenant and mercy for a thousand generations to those who love him and keep his commandments. Psalm 36, 5, God's faithfulness reaches to the skies. Exodus 34, 6, he's abounding in love and faithfulness. In contrast to the world's attack on, on our way of life, an attack on the truths of God's word, they say, you know, what are you believing that book for? What are you believing that old book that, you know, has been handed down? You don't surely believe that that's the truth. There's no faith. In contrast to that, God is faithful. He's faithful to protect the gospel. He's been faithful to give us uh, his word. And that's what we stand fast on. In closing uh, here, he says uh, in verse four, and we have confidence in the Lord concerning you both that you do and will do the things we command you. There is an expectation for obedience in the life of the Christian. Paul had an expectation that they would obey God's word. And that expectation is true for you and for me. It is, it is not okay to live in disobedience. And I know there's, we talk about, you know, the doctrine of sinless perfection. And, that, you know, it, do we fail? Absolutely we fail. Do we, do we sin as a Christian? Absolutely we do. And God is faithful. First John 1, 9, God is faithful to forgive as we confess our sins. That's a reality but there's an expectation for us that our lives would be marked by obedience and that we would be obedient. And Paul had that expectation for them. And he says, we're confident in the Lord that you will both do and continue to do and will do the things that we've commanded you. He then closes with another kind of small prayer for them. And he says, now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. And as we look up at uh, kind of this whole passage and we see 
Therefore stand. Why stand? Because you're called by God and you're sanctified by God and you have the glory of Christ to look forward to. Like that's who you are. And then here at the end, where's your heart supposed to rest? Where are your feet supposed to be planted? Where is your eyes supposed to be fixed in a culture that is constantly uh, pushing you around? He says, may God direct your heart into the love of Christ and into, um, I'm sorry, into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. You know, there is, um, the Bible talks about our heart. It says, protect it above all else. Out of it proceeds the issues of life. Jesus said in Matthew and in the Gospels about out of the heart is the outward manifestation of what's inside. When our words come out, it's really manifesting what's in our heart. And our heart is a powerful tool in steering our lives. And so the prayer here for the church and and Paul's prayer for them, and my prayer for you today is that God would direct your heart into the love of God. Rest in God's love for you and into the patience of Christ. You know, these, these, these early Christians um, in Acts saw the Lord taken up from them in Acts 1. And the angels came and said, why are you staying gazing up into heaven? And they said, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And the encouragement for us this morning is we're still in that time period. We are still at the feet of that mountain, looking up into the clouds, waiting for his return. And the encouragement to us is to stand fast in the truths of God's word, pray for each other. But look to the patience of Christ, into the patience of Christ. What, what was Christ's patience? His patience is what held him on the cross. His patience is what he set his face as a flint towards Calvary and went for you and me. No matter the cost, he went. That's the kind of patience we're to have in looking for his return. And it may seem like he's not coming. Like, Lord, where are you at? Patience of Christ. Not the patience of this world that's constantly flitting about. But no, like resolute. I am waiting for Christ's return. When Christ comes back, where will he find your heart? Will he find it resting in his love and waiting his return patiently? That was Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians. And I, I, my prayer for you, and I've been praying this for you this weekend, just as I've looked at this, and again this morning, just praying for you, that, that God would direct your hearts into his love and that you would be looking for his return. Let's just close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for just this encouragement to stand strong, to stand fast. Lord, there is uh, a ton of worldly influence in our lives um, that would love to cloud the truths of your word and to push us off course. Lord, thank you for the New Testament and just the direction for the church. Thank you for not only the teaching of the apostles, but just as we read through the narrative and we just see their sacrificial living and giving as they just poured themselves out uh, for your people. And God, we see that as a model for us as, as a church family, just to, to love one another, to pray for one another. And God, I just pray that Bethany would be a family that prays for one another and holds each other up. Lord, would our hearts be resting in your love, patiently waiting 
for your return. We just, Lord, if you come today, we're just, we, we can't wait. We would love to see you. And uh, until then, Lord, just keep us faithful to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.